Hello, and welcome to The Regrettable Century. I'm Chris. And I'm Jason. And welcome back for another installment of Real Nerd Hours. This time, we are going to go a little bit deeper into a subject that we've touched on a couple of times before. And that is the so-called February Coup uh, that happened in Czechoslovakia in 1948. I gotta say that from all my readings, what uh, the Western what Western commentators seem to think a coup is is the mass mobilization of the entire proletariat and uh, demands for workers' control of the government. Yeah, I was what I most of what I read for this was stuff about how bad it was, but it was all about how good it was. You, they just used the wrong yeah. words. The most sympathetic article we read, and we're going to include these in the show notes, I think, is the Jacobin article that was basically lamenting the bypassing of social democracy for the establishment of the communist dictatorship, which I'm somewhat sympathetic to, but not that much <laughs> sympathetic. Yeah, like I think we'll, we'll get into it shortly, but to me, what I read here is 1948 was good, but 1968 was also good. Because they were the same thing. Yeah, so first I think we should just talk about what it is, the kind of narrative we were, in, uh, we were given, the one that we inherited as being part of the Western political left. Because right. I spent a lot of time uh, operating under the assumption that it was, that the, basically the way that the story went was that, uh, you know, the Second World War happened, the Germans occupied Czechoslovakia. Then the Red Army came through and kicked him out and then only left once they had, a, you know, a, installed a puppet government. And that was kind of the story that I, I, I had in mind for a very long time. Um, that's yeah. the one that all Western liberals, including the ones that call themselves socialists, uh, have maintained yeah. for, like, <laughs> for like the whole Cold War period. The liberals had taught me how to be a Marxist. Yeah. So, and it made sense too, because when you think about the Prague Spring movement, the 1968 revolt, it's, it, you know, it's a revolt against the people that had been in power for the previous 20 years. It makes it really easy to not question that original founding myth, that, that first narrative about the illegitimately uh, top-down placement of a puppet government by an occupying military force. And it's like, yeah, of course there was a revolt against that. What, what complicated the narrative and what made me want to learn more about this, you know, in more depth is the fact that the 68 revolt was, uh, you know, in favor of socialism. So it was like, I was yeah. like, how did you impose socialism over the heads of people who wanted it? That's the, 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 the riddle that I couldn't solve for all these years operating under the, the, with the previous narrative in mind. And it turns out you can't. And that's not what happened. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the old IST narrative was that, uh, it's not true socialism because it's impossible to impose socialism with tanks. And that's what happened in Czechoslovakia. Uh, it conveniently ignores the, first of all, the agency of the Czechoslovak people in throwing out the Nazis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, there was a national, the, there was the national, um, revolt in Slovakia, which was enormous, where the entire Slovakian military revolted and joined the Red Army in throwing out the Nazis. Uh, after having spent several years in the Soviet Union fighting against the Red Army. And the Czechoslovak uh, resistance, the underground resistance, which was much quieter in the, in the Czech lands than 
the Slovak uh, due to the fact that a large part of the Czech resistance was killed after Reinhard, he- Reinhard Heydrich was assassinated. I was going to say quiet after it was loud. Yeah, quiet after it was loud. Quiet after uh, a group of commandos, um, the, the main two that actually uh, pulled the trigger and threw the bombs at Heydrich being one Czech and one Slovak. And uh, the retaliation to that was absolutely brutal and resulted in thousands of civilians being murdered and the Czechoslovak resistance in the Czech lands being utterly decimated. But yeah, um, so yeah, there's a certain amount of agency in the resistance of the Nazis, the collaboration with the Red Army, and the establishment of the 1945 to 48 state that is ignored. Like that, that period just doesn't exist to liber- Western liberals or, uh, uh, you know, the, the ultra lefts who fail to see the nuances of the 1948 to 1968 period. All those people with that, uh, that disorder that rejects nuance. Yeah, the, the American left disorder, that, that one brain worm that gets in your head from uh, getting your political education through easily digestible uh, pamphlets or, uh, you know, TikToks or whatever, depending on which generation you're from. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, the, so, so what's fortunate about, about this story, something that really makes it a lot uh, less difficult to understand, even though it makes it much more complex and complicated, is that uh that sort of framework that we we sort of worked back through man what it sucks two three years ago in an episode we did called neither socialism from below nor socialism from above but definitely socialism um yes this this episode the victorious february um is a really good example of how complex the dynamics of social transformation actually are I wrote down, was it a coup or a popular revolution? And then I wrote one answer, which was yes. And I feel like, <laughs> I feel like that really shouldn't actually baffle us. Um, I'm, 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 let's, let's talk through it. Okay, so let's set up a little bit of background. Um, in 1928, which is 20 years before the coup in question, um, the Czech CP was the largest communist party outside of the USSR. It had surpassed the German Communist Party. Not This isn't just per capita. This is... Right, like in absolute terms, yeah. In absolute terms, the Czech Communist Party was the biggest party outside of the Soviet Union with 138,000 members. And many of the country's leading literary and intellectual figures were supporters or fellow travelers of the Communist Party. Uh, the most famous of them being Yaroslav Hasek, who wrote... The Good Soldier Schweik, which is the, still, the official national novel of the Czech Republic. And he was, he was captured fighting for Austria-Hungary against the Russian Empire and freed by the Bolsheviks, became a commissar in the Red Army with a detachment of communist Czech troops. After the war, he went back to the, to the United States. The other home, the other motherland. The other motherland, right? Uh, not Texas, but Czechoslovakia. Uh, he went back to Czechoslovakia and um, sat in parliament as a communist deputy. But yeah, he's just sort of indicative of a type of person that was attracted to communism in the interwar period. It was not only a mass workers party, but a party that captured the uh, imaginations of the intelligentsia as well. So Czechoslovakia was highly industrialized. 
It is the perfect example of the conditions that Marx and Engels said would be necessary for the establishment of socialism. It's a highly industrial, highly industrialized in some areas with a organized, self-aware proletariat in a mass political party. With a, with a fairly well-established democratic traditions, even if, I, I mean, hell, I don't know if that's the right way to put it exactly, but I think maybe it's by virtue of the constant struggles for autonomy in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, that there's a little bit of mm-hmm. like home rule, self, self-administration that the Czech people had, which means that there's a well-developed civil society, which isn't German speaking. Um, so but once you right. get a Czech, Czechoslovak Republic, there is a civil service, there is a bureaucracy, Par- parliamentarism is like comes naturally. So it's like, yeah, you have a democratic republic on a heavy industrial base with a well-organized and politically sophisticated working class. Right. And the, the Czech bloc in the Austro-Hungarian parliament was particularly well-organized, unified, and actually remarked upon by Adolf Hitler as being vulgar swine that disrupted the proceedings because the Czechs were highly nationalistic and uh, would fight every single infringement on their national sovereignty. And uh, Tomasz Masaryk was a, an in-exile, a leader in-exile of the Czech nationalist movement. And he was a philosophy professor who was, uh, and he wanted to establish Czechoslovak Republic as a social democratic state. So from its inception, Czechoslovakia was a social democratic state. Its first, its first ruling party uh, was the National Socialist Party, and this is, the National Socialist Party was not. It had absolutely nothing to do with the National Socialist German Workers. Right. Party. It was. It was, it was. It was more like a real National Socialist Party. It was a breakaway from the Social Democratic Party that was focused on. Czech nationalism and uh, the establishment of a Czechoslovak state, whereas the Social Democratic Party, Social Democratic Party within the uh, Austro-Hungarian Parliament, was more internationalist. So that's what it split on. the The primary focus of the Czechoslovak National Socialist Party was the establishment of the Czechoslovak state. So you have this robust democracy with a gigantic, well-organized Workers' Party. And uh, several socialist parties in parliament making up a, the majority, making up the majority. There were, of course, uh, minor parties because there was plurality. There were minor parties that were right wing uh, pseudo fascist parties. Some there is even a Czech fascist party that was completely insignificant. But by 1938, we all know what happens in 1938. There's the Munich Agreement, wherein uh, the French and the English uh, threatened to let Germany have their way with Czechoslovakia if they don't give up the Sudetenland. And the Sudetenland is the border region, the mountainous border region, which was heavily fortified in the years between the end of World War I and 1938 with a series of forts that the Germans were uh, terrified of trying to penetrate. Uh, Because at this point, Germany wasn't the military monster that it became once it swallowed up Czech industry. It needed Czech industry to be able to prosecute its campaign in Poland. It took 
thousands of chassis of Czech tanks and fitted them to be German tanks. And those were the tanks that invaded Poland. So like in 1938, the Munich agreement happens. The French and the British who had promised to back the Czechs against the Germans, sell the Czechs out. The Sudetenland is taken. Their front line of fortifications is gone. And then a few months later, Germany just invades the rest of Czechoslovakia. Whoops. Because there was no, uh, you know, they didn't have the fortification. They didn't have the one thing that could have stopped the Germans from uh, pouring across the border. And even then, the French and the British don't do anything to oppose Hitler. At this point, the French military well outclasses the German military. It's a lot stronger, has better tanks, better fighters, fighter planes, everything. But anyway, so they just let it happen. The Czechoslovak government goes into exile and is stationed in London. Once the war begins, after the Germans invade Poland... Oh, and I might mention that Poland and Hungary stole pieces of Czechoslovakia whenever the Germans invaded. But then... Germany invaded Poland and, uh, you know, started World War II. So the Czechoslovak government goes into exile and President Benish, who was the president when the Munich Agreement happened and he resigned after the Munich Agreement, President Benish is the head of the Czechoslovak government in exile. Um, and his job is to, from 1938 until 1941, is to get the British to recognize Czechoslovakia as being fully restored back to the pre-Munich Agreement terms, because that was a legally binding signature that Chamberlain put on the document. Right, because those weren't those weren't annexations by a hostile occupying power. That was a series of agreements between all of the concert of Europe. Right, exactly. So bunch of snakes in the grass. So Benish finally gets the British to agree that. Uh, Czechoslovakia after the war will be restored to its full size because Stalin recognizes the previous boundaries of Czechoslovakia after the Soviet Union enters the war in 19. This, this happens in 1941. Stalin agrees to recognize the Czechoslovak boundaries. The British, um, looking like the dupes and chumps that they were, <laughs> hurry up and agree to the thing that Stalin agreed to already. So, you know, I said concert of europe um but of course that does have a particular meaning uh which is the refers to the post-napoleonic uh political order across europe um the sort of re-establishment of reaction and a series of diplomatic treaties between all of the post-revolutionary states uh in europe um, i feel like it still applies here as a catch-all term to the the reigning mediocrity and status quo of of not reaction but just typical bourgeois governance vacillating bourgeois democracy yeah. um i was when you said concert of europe i just thought about the final countdown <laughs> well that was also a concert of europe <laughs> i'm sure they played that at their concert yeah um okay so um we're nearing the we're nearing 1945 here is where our story really begins but the, the Soviet Union, um, Benish really, really wanted the Allies to liberate Czechoslovakia because he didn't want to have to deal with Stalin. But as after Stalingrad and uh, 
the lack of uh, a second front opening in Europe, the Czechoslovaks start to realize that they're going to have to deal with Stalin, and Stalin was probably going to get to Czechoslovakia before the Allies, because it was looking like the Soviet Union was going to fight the whole war by themselves. Which, if we're rounding up, they did. I mean, yeah, they they fought the majority of the war by themselves, for sure. Right. 85% of uh, Germans killed in World War II were killed by Red Army bullets and bombs. 85%. You know, I don't know. It was very nice of the combined Western powers of to uh, pull that the rest of that 15%. Well, you got to also remember the uh, partisan activities in and resistance movements in occupied Europe also make up oh, yeah. part of that other 15%. Right, that's true. And most of those were uh, run by communists. Not most of them. A lot of them were. Um, so, Benish starts looking to the USSR... Uh, and eventually the Soviet Union does liberate most of Czechoslovakia. The, the United States makes it into Western Czechoslovakia and liberates up to Pilsen. And the, the Red Army with, with the uprising in, in Prague and the, uh, Slovak National Uprising liberate the rest of Czechoslovakia. And here is something which is super interesting. So what do you think the Red Army did after they liberated Czechoslovakia? So what I was told growing up was that they uh, imposed uh, a communist dictatorship and found some Czechs to run it in their name, but essentially created a puppet state. Right. So what they did was they left. Ah, right. The, uh, the opposite of what they, we were told that they did. As per the agreement uh, that Stalin made with Roosevelt and Churchill, Czechoslovakia was uncontested territory. They drew a line down, you know, that went Poland, left Czechoslovakia as uncontested territory, gave Austria to the West, even though the, it was liberated by Soviet troops, kept Yugoslavia within their sphere of influence, Albania within their sphere of influence, gave Greece to the Western sphere of influence, because Churchill just had a strange obsession with Greece. Uh that is evidenced by his fixation with invading the Balkans all throughout World War II, just like he tried to invade the Balkans at Gallipoli in World War I. That was Churchill's fault. Well, there's been a, there's um, kind of been a weird British romance of Greece going back to the, uh, I mean, it's like Lord Byron trying to assist in the Greek War of Independence. <laughs> right. <laughs> Something right, about like British great did. British men involving themselves in Greek affairs, it's a it's a long tradition. Yeah. So, I mean, Greece was thoroughly communist, and the only reason it didn't go completely communist is because Stalin refused to back the communist rebels there, and the British and the United States backed the pseudo-fascist-slash-monarchist dictatorship that um, brutally slaughtered all the communists and established and ruled there until uh, they were thrown out in the 70s right 70s? it's the regime of the colonels yeah. it was the kingdom of greece that combined elements of the far right with the monarchists including a, a bunch of fascists who supported the monarchy and that was what ruled uh, from 1946 until i think the regime of the colonels 
but anyway, that's that's beyond our scope. We can we can go ahead and move on. Um, so the communists, because of their prominence in the resistance, uh, were incredibly popular in Czechoslovakia. But at the same time, so was Edvard Benesch, who was the one who carried on the government in exile. He coordinated resistance with the Soviet Union during the war. So Edvard Benesch was the was the president of Czechoslovakia. And uh, Jan Mazurik was Tomáš Mazurik's son, and he was the foreign minister, and he was part of the Benish government. He was incredibly popular because of who his dad was. And because of the popularity of the communists, uh, Clement Gottwald was the uh, prime minister because the communists held the most seats in parliament. This was what was referred to as the National Front Government. There are two versions of National Front Government. This first version of the National Front Government was established April of 1945 in Košice, Slovakia. This one basically includes all the democratic parties as well. I've got Oh, a, you're going to list it. Yeah. I've got okay. a list. I I'm going to I'm going to tell you the whole list. But it was established in April of 1945 at uh Košice in Slovakia but was conceived of in 1943 as like a coalition group that would reestablish Czechoslovak democracy after the war and coordinate resistance uh, during the war. But let's see, Th- these are the numbers taken from the 1946 elections. So which would be the first elections after the reestablishment of democracy in uh, Czechoslovakia. There was the KSC and the KSS the KSC being the Czech Communist Party and the KSS being the Slovak Communist Party, which were Marxist-Leninist. You know, they were in part of the part of the common turn, not common turn. Yeah, common turn and then the common form. And they held 114 seats in parliament. There was the Democratic Party, which is a Slovak party, which was an agrarian conservative party. They held 43 seats. There was the Czech Social Democrats. They held 37 seats. The Czech National Socialists. And uh, they were social social democrats, social liberals, and had like a West-looking focus. They had 55 seats. There was the Czechoslovak People's Party, which was a Christian Democratic Party, which held 46 seats. And there was the Slovak Freedom Party, which was a Christian Democratic Party in Slovakia, which held three seats. There was the Labor Party of Slovakia, which was a social democratic party, which held three seats. So that means that the socialists as a block, which they didn't always block together, but 208 seats in parliament were held by socialist party parties and 92 se- seats were held by non-socialist parties. Now, the there were uh, several parties that had been banned uh, after the war because of their collaboration with the Nazis, like the Slovak People's Party, which was Josip Tito, Josip Tiso. Like, that's the bad one. Yeah. Yeah. Josip jo- Tiso, not to be confused with Josip Tito. No, no. So it's Josip Tiso. Josip Tito. That party was banned. And then several other parties that took, took part in the Party of National Unity, which was the, uh, the collaborationist party that helped the Nazis rule the, uh, rule Czechoslovakia. So the National Front government was pretty much across the board dedicated to the nationalization of large industries, even some medium-sized industries, really. 
social welfare and workers' control of industry. This is, you know, they were led by the communists. This National Front government was led by the communists because they were the biggest party. But everyone in this coalition was basically acquiescing to communist demands because it was what the people of Czechoslovakia wanted. Well, right. And the the way I've understood it uh, lately, and honestly for the first time, is that the left wing of the Social Democratic Party actually tended to be more radical in its sort of presentation than the communists were. Similar to the Austrian social democracy had its left wing that was the, the right. armed militia that fought fascists. Um, it's the, the, it's the same thing happened that happens all over, all over Europe that causes the French turn, whether the fourth international groups go into social democracy. Right. And then rather than staying and organizing the left wing, they just left with the most left of those people, whatever, which is, I know not the point, but yeah. anyways, <laughs> I understand it to be the case that the left social democrats actually like, the communists risked looking right-wing compared to them. The Czech Social Democrats blocked with the communists all the time and uh, eventually would support them in during the coup, right? So during this period um, is when the expulsion of the Sudeten Germans happens, which is one of the tragedies of the post-war period in that a lot of people were displaced. They were kicked out of their homes. It, it was essentially a, an ethnic cleansing of German speakers from the Sudetenland, which you'll remember the Sudetenland from earlier when we talked about how the Nazis took over Czechoslovakia because of the Sudetenland. So ethnic Germans were expelled, and this was decided on by Benish. Is actually, in the articles that I read, they, they talked about the tragedy of this expulsion as though it was part of, like, the communist government doing it. But, you know, if you just look at the Wikipedia entry, this was decided on by the Benish government in uh, 1943 in London with the acquiescence of the Western Allies. Right, that was the, the conclusion, uh, that, that was their sort of way of ensuring that a post-war Germany wouldn't be an aggressor state for a third time, right? Being yeah. like, look, there are no more Germans here. This is definitely not part of Germany, right? That's, I mean, it's so, obviously, it's a, probably really tragic to be one of the deported Germans, but I think ethno-nationalist politics are pretty much the standard at the time. I have a, a friend, uh, an internet friend that see that saw some of my po- posts about being Czech and she was just like, well, I'm Czech, but my family was kicked out of the Sudetenland yeah, because we're we're ethnic Germans, and I was like, interesting, because my family lived in a part of the Czech, Czechoslovakia that was depopulated of Czechs, so the Germans can move in, <laughs> uh, which is something that didn't yeah. happen. Uh, the Czechs were kicked off of prime farmland, and that farmland was given to Germans. Uh, they were they weren't wholesale expelled, but uh, there was a partial depopulation of Czechs. This is a silly thing about German uh, Lebensraum ideas, the idea that they needed to conquer living space because they were a, a people without land who needed a land without people. Right? Yeah. Where, um, where have you heard that before? Dri- <laughs> which is their whole drive towards the east was based on that. Uh, they didn't actually have enough people to, uh, to completely depopulate Poland and the Sudetenland and 
you know, Ukraine and everywhere else. They they actually had to try to force people into those areas. But anyway, so two to three million ethnic Germans were expelled due to the fact that, and this was their, the justification used by the Czechoslovaks at the time, 97% had voted for the, the NSDAP in 1938. 17% of adults joined the NSDAP compared to the 8% of adults in Germany that joined the NSDAP. So the Sudetenland was highly, highly Nazified. So, yes, uh, it's like the suburbs of Kiev. They didn't. <laughs> so the, the Sudeten Germans were generally administers of the Reichsprotectorate because they spoke Czech. Notorious SS general uh, Karl Hermann Frank, who was Secretary of State of the Reichsprotectorate of Bohemia and Moravia. So the, uh, basically the Germans had to prove their anti-Nazi credentials in order to stay. So a lot of social democrats, communists, and democrats who had been targets of the Nazis got to stay. And uh, after the, the area was depopulated of Germans, they resettled um, the former German lands with Czechs and Slovaks, mostly. But a lot of displaced Roma... Jews and Greeks who were fleeing the the monarchist dictatorship, um, backed by the United States and the UK. So even to this day, there are still a significant number of Germans there. Uh, Forty thousand people in the census, the one of the most recent census, claim to be direct descendants of Sudeten Just, Germans. So these are people who have a family lineage of proven anti-fascist. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Um, political heritage or, or uh, political uh, activity. Jesus. Proven anti-fascist political activity. There were some atrocities committed, but they weren't committed by the government. They were generally mobs that were burning out Germans and lynching them, essentially, in retribution for the crimes of the Nazis. And it there were excesses, and it was a tragedy. Czechoslovakia was founded on an idea of ethnically based czech and slovak state and even though it was western and pluralistic and uh, democratic it still had within it the potential for ethnic violence as retribution for the uh for for the other ethnic violence yeah yeah so i mean i'm not trying to excuse it here this is just reverse ethnic violence no, I know we're not. Think is we're not trying to excuse it, and I'm just making jokes the whole time. But it's true. Yeah, we're not trying to. We excuse are not it, advocates for de-Germanization of the Czech lands. We're no, not, not it's, now. It's, it's already it's, it's already, already done. done. That digression about ethnic cleansing sort of just broke up the point that I was trying to make about the communists being incredibly popular in 1945. <laughs> But I felt like it was worth addressing because it's so- another thing that's highly misunderstood because it's I always heard it referred to as something that the communists did rather than something that the Western Democrats, right. the Western facing Democrats initiated. Of course, communists were involved in it as well, but, you know, it was a collaborative project. So let's see. Um, well, right. But that's because um, the way that you would heard about it was within the context of an understanding of 1945 as the day the Russians showed up and never left. Yeah. So everything that happened after that has to be the fault of communists, despite the fact that it was literally not. And nobody thought so at the time. 
So the communists were had heavy support within the army. Uh, the general of the commander of the Czechoslovak army was Ludwig Svoboda, who was a uh, who had fought in the Red Army alongside the Red Army in a Czech detachment uh, that was armed and outfitted by the the Red Army, and he fought alongside the Red Army all throughout Eastern Europe, and eventually liberated uh, Czechoslovakia with the Red Army. And you and I saw s- several statues yeah. to to these people um, when we were there. They also had heavy support in the police, many of whom were former uh, soldiers and uh, people who had fought alongside the communists and the resistance and alongside the Red Army when Czechoslovakia was liberated. I think that that's like a hard thing for people to get their heads around when you're reading it, like trying to imagine a, a police force full of communist supporters and communist party members. Um, but that's just because it's, we're not talking about the United States in the 21st century. Yes, the the institution of policing in the United States is completely different than the institution of policing in che- Czechoslovakia. Um but you have to think about the the state that was created in 1945 between 1945 and 1948 was this strange hybrid pseudo it's like a, a united front government for the establishment of socialism democracy and the police that were in service to that regime embodied all of the contradictions that this that the regime displayed meaning that it was a partially bourgeois partially communist partially social democrat government that was trying to establish pluralistic democracy and stalinist dictatorship at the same time you know i mean it was it, it was a mess and so was so were all the institutions of the the regime so the union movement after the war exploded it was incredibly popular it was it was an enormous movement that was thoroughly controlled by the communists because the communists were the ones most dedicated to the cause of labor. They were the best organizers and the most dedicated organizers and held most of the key positions within its leadership because they're the ones that built it from the ground up. By 1946, there were 12,000 factory councils, which made radical demands that often outpaced the, uh, the communists in government. Among these councils, there was an enormous portion of them that were held by seats that were held by communists. Similar to the Russian Revolution, you have radical councils pushing demands that the uh, represent representatives in parliament can't keep up with. So there's this pressure from below to radicalize the revolution, push the revolution forward. Right now, the, this National Front government is involved in what the communists refer to as the Democratic Revolution, which they say will carry over to the Socialist Revolution. And that is, that's what's understood by radical Social Democrats and by communists and by radicals within every single party, is that this eventual National Revolution, National Democratic Revolution, will carry forward to the Socialist Revolution. Yeah, I was actually surprised when I read um, that one of the... the- popular sayings at the time was if the government um won't do the revolution 
quickly enough, we'll do it for them. Or I, I, I have that somewhat wrong, but it's something something about the oh, it's, it's if they don't like the slow revolution, we'll give them the fat, the quick revolution. That's what it was. But like, it's right. it's a really it, interesting thing to consider that it was understood at all times that like we're 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 working on building socialism. It's just that you know the parliament is being a little bit too bourgeois about it. Not that it not that it right. isn't for socialism. Like that the National Front government was already a. Uh, you know, at least spoke the language of socialism, which is a really difficult thing to grasp without all of the back history that you gave us, right? About the pre-war Czech socialist movement being huge, the proletariat being well-organized, Czechoslovakia being particularly ripe for uh, this democratic socialist transition. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the communist government often, the communist in government, um, because it wasn't a communist government yet, the communist in government often criticized the radical trade unionists and workers councils as being syndicalist <laughs> which is essentially it's what they criticized tito's yugoslav government of, of as well it's um, the best thing they could come up with and, you guys are also comrades but you know like like anarchists basically there were also revolutionary guards that were formed after the war as the Germans, well, it, they were formed in the final days of the war and were basically the armed wing of the trade union movement all the way up until the communists actually told their members not to participate in and they dissolved without the communist membership because they were too out, out too far in advance of where the communists in government wanted them to be. So the armed armed representatives of the workers' councils and the trade union movement were causing a lot of trouble. So the communists had to like tamp that down. Yeah, it's like a, it's like if you had 1917, but without the Red Guard, or that you had the Red Guard, but they didn't really, the communists didn't like them anymore. So we've set up February of 1948. So all throughout this period, from 1945 to 1948, you've got this slow rolling socialization that's happening industries are being nationalized they're not being nationalized from the top down nor are they being taken over from the bottom up there's this sort of reciprocal relationship between workers taking over their workplaces and govern and the the government at the top nationalizing these workplaces it's this dialectical synthesis of above and below uh happening throughout the 1945 to 1948 period that's building steam for what happens in 1948. Yeah, I was when I read this uh this foreign affairs article from 1948 by uh by Bruce Lockhart called the Czechoslovak Revolution. Like there is it's it's extremely unambiguous. They talk about um Masaryk and Benish uh being in like a tolerant of the inevitable socialization but just didn't presume that Gottwald would be, you know, uh, unfair. But not that there was like, that the, the socialism wasn't the, the thing that was imposed. It was party rule is the way that this article in Foreign Affairs talks about it. They talk about, uh, you know, the tragedy is that Gottwald wouldn't let the Czechs carry out their revolution uh, in their own way, right? The nationalization was already near complete, according to this article. Uh, the trade unions and peasant organizations were were very strong and armed and pro-socialist. So essentially in 48, foreign affairs is saying, you already have a revolution happening. You're already getting socialism. Why do you have to be mean about it? I mean, and that's a fair point. 
really. But <laughs> given the conditions on the ground, a social democratic, a radical social democratic, marks a Marxist government that implemented through social democratic means was never going to last next door to Germany. Oh, of course not. No. Or next door to NATO. Next or door to NATO, next door exactly. to the Soviet Union. Let's be let's be real, right. you know. That's true. That's true. So there was never going to be the Czechoslovak path to socialism, uh, even though that's what this was. Th- this was the Czechoslovak path to socialism, but it was never going to stay Czechoslovak socialism. Uh, that's one of the great tragedies of the 20th century, in my humble opinion. Czechoslovak socialism never existed, even though it had so much potential in 1948 and then again in 1968. Um, let's see. In February of 1948, there was a disagreement between the moderate wings of Czech socialism and the communist wing of Czech socialism over the replacement of several Czech police officials, Czechoslovak police Several police officials, since I don't have to say that they were Czechoslovak, because this is all <laughs> happening in Czechoslovak. Yeah, like at no point is another country going to come into the... We, if we do, we'll yeah, say, yeah. you know, Germany, United States, Soviet Union. So, there was a disagreement over the repla- of the attempted replacement of police officials by the moderate wing of Czechoslovak socialism by the communists. Or, attempted replacement of police officials who were communist by the moderate wing of the government. And uh, Clement Gottwald basically says that this is an attempt to stifle the revolution. He basic he basically uses it as casus belli for, to kick off the revolution in, in earnest. He says this is an attempt to stifle the revolution, uh, and he called on Benish to, to sack the ministers that were involved and to recognize the establishment of Czechoslovak socialism. So the, the, the KSC, as the leading party in parliament, was able to attack the presidency and the non-communists, not the other non-communist parties in government, from a position of power, right? Also calling for the workers to seize initiative from below. So they do. The workers begin to organize their councils, the, uh, the, the revolutionary guards are reestablished. The ones that had been disbanded earlier, uh, were reestablished and they begin to seize key parts of the government. On February 24th, the communist dominated labor unions led a general strike and militias began to take over the headquarters of the other political parties. We, so. I, I I learned this just today, actually, that uh, that general strike was uh, the participants re- uh, reached two and a half million uh, workers on strike out of a total workforce of 11 million, which is actually a very staggering level of participation. Oh, yeah, that's the mass strike, yeah. right? That's the strike that Russell Luxemburg talked about. This this mass strike completely shut down. The entire country, nothing could happen. The printing presses, the only ones that ran were the communist printing presses. The workers refused to cross the picket line to print the uh, the bourgeois newspapers or even the social democratic newspapers. The only newspapers that would print were the communist newspapers. The 
Social Democratic Party held had an internal debate and voted on whether or not to support the revolution. They eventually voted to support the revolution, and two of the three Social Democratic MPs resigned and basically just strengthened the position of the communists in parliament. Right, because not only is it that there was there were fewer Social Democrats in the parliament, in the National Assembly, I think is what they call it, but uh, the ones that were left were inclined toward cooperation with the communists. They were people that represented more of a left left social democracy. Right. And there were there were elements of people that represented more of a left social democracy or were sympathetic to hurrying up the establishment of Czechoslovak socialism in all of the left parties. Uh, and they began to coalesce into committees push, uh, pushing for their parties to j- come out in full support of the of the revolution and they went so far as to even kick out officials of their own parties who refused to support the revolution and to block their ministers from being able to enter their offices. Okay. So by February 25th, a hundred thousand demonstrators, uh, gathered in Wenceslas square, uh, which I I hate saying Wenceslas because it's a lot harder to say than Václav. Yeah. Saint, Saint Wenceslas is the (laughs) anglicized version of Saint Václav or Svati Václav. And Wenceslas Square is the uh, Václavské Namiesti. And uh, 100,000 people gathered there in support of the revolution while the police arrested counter-protesters who had gathered uh, and marched on Prague Castle. Around five to 10,000 people had uh, gathered to oppose the revolution. And the police arrested them <laughs> because the police were a whole bunch of communists. So the morning papers that morning printed a statement of 153 promise, prominent Czechoslovak intellectuals who came out in support of the revolution. And the, uh, and the KSC communicated to Benish that they had engaged the support of the people, a vast majority of the people. Right, which, which is undeniable the, at the time. Yes. The intelligentsia, which if you read these foreign, uh, if you read these foreigners like Americans who were there witnessing it, they could not believe that the intelligentsia didn't side with the bourgeoisie. The intelligentsia sided with the communists and the army, which we established was full of people who fought against the Nazis alongside the Red Army and was led by a former fighter who had accompanied the Red Army across Eastern Europe to help liberate Czechoslovakia, the police and Soviet Union. They said, we have all of these in support of us and told Benish to concede. He resigned in the face of overwhelming odds. But uh, Jan Masaryk did not resign, right? Or unless... No, Jan Masaryk stayed, uh, stayed on as foreign minister. And eventually he died. Uh, in in what was ruled a suicide, and uh, there's there's nothing to say that it wasn't, but there's also there's also a lot of suspicion because he was just found at the bottom. He, he was found on the cobblestones underneath his you know his window. To kill Jan Masaryk would have been, or to arrest Jan Masaryk would have been an incredibly damaging thing for the communists. To drive him 
This didn't happen. Seems like to drive him to suicide would also be a negative. uh, Really bad for PR. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't. I haven't read enough about it to to really determine what I think. I just know that the communists say it was a suicide, and the the bourgeois commenters on that say that it was probably murder. Either way, it sucks that the son of the founder of Czechoslovakia commits suicide or dies or is murdered during the communist take or not during the communist after the communist takeover so czechoslovak socialism is established and the uh national front is reconstituted so the 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 czech communist party the ksc is incorporates the the cssd which is the the Czechoslovak Social Democratic Party and the CPS, which is the Communist Party of Slovakia, they all get incorporated into the KSC, um, making it an enormous party with an easy majority without even trying, without even having to block in parliament. They, they held a majority of political power as before, except for now it was formalized. And now the, the state had been established as an explicitly socialist government not a government that was trending towards socialism. So the new National Front included the Marxist-Leninist uh, KSC, the Party of Slovak Revival, which was the reconstituted Democratic Party that I mentioned earlier, which was an agrarian uh, conservative party. It reconstitutes as a Democratic Socialist Party. The Czechoslovak Socialist Party, which is the Czechoslovak National Socialist Party, drops national out of its name. Probably for the best. And, yeah... And is still a democratic socialist party. The Czechoslovak People's Party, which was a Christian conservative, a Christian democratic party, rebrands itself as a Christian socialist party. And the, Slo- and the Slovak Freedom Party rebrands itself as a Christian socialist party. So National Front becomes a not only the ruling government of Czechoslovakia, from 1948 until the Velvet Revolution, quote-unquote, which is more like the Velvet Reaction. But, you know. <laughs> velvet Revolution, more like Velvet Reaction. <laughs> velvet bullshit. I mean, I. it's a complicated situation, and Czechs are understandably not very nostalgic for the communist years because of the post-1968 yeah. Well, because of the experience Period. of Stalinist yeah. methods of administration. I mean, I, I understand that. Exactly. Yeah, I understand it. But I don't think it was no. progress. Uh, let's say, so the National Front becomes the ruling government until the Velvet Revolution. And not only that, but it becomes like the... The organization pervades the entirety of Czechs, of Czechoslovak society. There's the revolutionary trade union movement that is directly tied to the national government. There's the uh, Socialist Union of Youth, which is like a communist boy and girl scouts, which has 1.5 million members. There's the Czech Union of Women, which has 1 million members. The Czechoslovak Red Cross, the Union of Agriculture, and the Union of Anti-Fascist Fighters, which is like a, you know, a... uh, essentially a support group for people that had engaged in the fight. Against it's kind the of Nazis. like the, uh, uh, American Legion, but for anti-fascist partisans. 
the VFW, right? Yes. American Legion yeah. of the VFW, right, or whatever. Except for it was an official government body, which made sure that they were taken care of. It was a it was an official government body for taking care of uh, partisan units. So it was the exact obverse, where in this country you have the official military, um, and you have private entities taking care of people after being sent to war. Right. Exactly. Because the you, the government doesn't take care of you. Yeah, because that would be uh, communist. They basically. Yeah, that's, that's bad. Yeah, it would be it would be communist, as example as exemplified they, they, here. I mean, they do to a certain extent take care of former soldiers. Like there are GI bills, and uh, if you can prove that your whatever disability you have is related to your time in the service, they'll take care of it. But they also do their damnedest to deny you. Uh, like I, I have a friend who has uh, several injuries as a result of his time in, as a in. In the airborne, he blew out his knee training. They refused to cover his medical bills afterwards because he wasn't in long enough. Oh, I, I thought you were going to say it because it wasn't they, d- during combat. No, he wasn't He wasn't in long enough because he hurt himself during training. So he got discharged because he was useless to them and then they refused to pay his medical bills. Um, I have another friend who had pretty bad PTSD from being in Iraq and uh, the government didn't start taking care of PTSD cases are taking them seriously at all until the Obama administration. Hmm. So there was, you know, two Bush terms and one and a half Obama terms before they really started taking PTSD seriously. You know, after a bunch of soldiers came, yeah. home, and came home and killed their families and committed suicide and shit like that. Uh, but anyway, that is the history of the Czechoslovak revolution or victorious february or the february coup or the czechoslovak coup which yeah i think it was all of those things all of these things yeah so when i was reading about this stuff and i'm thinking i'm just trying to compile all of the relevant information to to answer the primary political question to me which is is this a thing which is uh is it the revolution or is it uh some dress uh uh stage managed faux revolution as I was taught. And I think about how you have a two and a half million workers in a general strike. You have factory committees in 12,000 workplaces. Um, 12,000 workplaces, not 12,000 people right. in factory committees, 12,000 factory yeah. committees. I don't know if I made that clear whenever I mentioned well, it's, it. It's earlier. staggering to consider. So I think it's, you have to say it a couple times to make it sink in really. Um, yeah. The previous election had thirty-eight uh, percent votes for the Communist Party and twelve percent votes for the Social Democrats. Right, so that's the there's, there's popular support. But what matters really is that um, you have the overwhelming majority of the working people of the country, and that means the majority of the people of the country demanding that their mostly socialist government becomes thoroughly socialist. That it's slow process of socialization gets sped up and that's that's what we're really talking about that's the yes and it this pressure to nationalize is coming even from outside the communist party um and yeah the pressure to nationalize is just a general sentiment of the czechoslovak people it seems to me like when you have a mass popular movement backing a popular government with a majority support to uh, insist that it does the things it was elected to do, 
And it, that insistence comes in the form of a force of arms, uh, self-administration, uh, self-management of factories, and a general strike. I think, yeah, that's a revolution in the most thorough sense of yeah. the word. When I think about what a revolution is in a uh, modern industrial country, that this is like the fucking playbook in my mind. I can't, you, you couldn't really imagine. A, I don't understand why. Yeah, you couldn't imagine a more perfectly like this is uh, this is like the 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 gold standard is what is what it seems to me yeah the the i mean the big problem is is that it didn't establish something good yeah sadly it established uh, a copycat of the other people's republics which I, I was you know if you if you look at bulgaria and a couple of other places it's also pretty similar i mean their elections happen with the red army you know inside the country but it's the same thing it's the the population's over the moon about the fact that they get to be socialist now so it seems yeah. to me like the real tragedy here is not this original sin narrative that we were raised with about um yeah. well you know you can't make socialism that way because it makes it wrong from the get-go it it really complicates things because it looks like you have the most thorough uh and legitimate revolution and the first one in a advanced industrial state it's the it's the ideal revolution for a marxist uh and yet it still produces uh a a a state incapable of of reproducing itself um in the form of expanding whatever popular participation so um you know to me it's it's the very first thing we should consider is whether this was the good revolution. I think it was. Um, I think it's another question entirely why the problem of transition is one that seems to be just we've failed across the board in the last century. But but at least in right. terms of bringing uh, a coalition of different left-wing parties to power to make a socialist uh, economy, this just looks good. To me, this is like this is the... I don't, I don't understand why we're against it. I don't understand why we were ever supposed to and be it, against it. The the proof that it could have been something different is evidenced by 1968. Yeah, that's right. Is evidenced by 1968. Like the after Stalin's death, there's a period of not economic liberalization, but political liberalization. And there's a flourishing of the arts. Um, this is where Czech New Wave cinema comes from. It's a, it's a period that's universally looked to as one of the bright spots of 20th century arts. And um, it's from from the death of Stalin until 1968 is a bright spot in human history as Czechoslovakia begins to experiment with its own version of Czech socialism. And this idea of socialism with the human face is uh, is born. Now, the way that that gets, that's an, an entirely different subject that i think maybe we should do an episode on that usually gets talked about like it's oh this was on this was a uh petty bourgeois movement that came from the 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 managers and uh professionals within the party and uh you know petty bourgeois people in the big cities it didn't really have anything to do with uh workers government and i'm like look you had the workers government this was people trying to expand on the rights, expand on the rights that existed within the workers' government. And naturally, it came from 
layers within the government who could do something about it. But yeah, that's that's a whole separate episode. We could keep we could talk about that for you know another hour. Yeah, I think we actually probably should. We should dedicate an episode you know, to uh, yeah, you know the the tragedy of Czech so- of Czechoslovak socialism. But I think yeah. I think it's really easy to look at just the facts here and the way I think it's critical the way that foreign anti-communist observers wrote about it at the time. You know where it's inexplicable mm-hmm. that there's no resistance, and they say things like, "Oh, it must be that they were." Uh, the Czech people were just so psychologically defeated uh, by uh, six years of occupation that they just weren't capable of resisting this, uh, you know, overwhelming popular display of not only enthusiasm for the communists, but armed insistence that the communists act like communists. They were so incapable of resisting it that they took up weapons yeah. And made sure yeah, they, they went and got rifles. And they refused to go to work until they could come back with all their friends and go in together and take over their workplace uh, because they were just like, I guess I'm resigned to this. But, you know, it's it's <laughs> it's clear when reading these assessments from the foreign observers from anti-communist press that this is like uh, a, 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 a major uh, possibility, the real tragedy is that it's like within, I want to say it's like by 1951, so within like three years, it becomes pretty clear that that, that communist ingenuity in um, slowly, you know, that long march through the institutions that they, that they carry out from like 1945 to 48, getting into certain positions, finding um, loyal collaborators, fellow travelers in the other parties, that that kind of never stops. And so for like two to three years after the complete seizure of power, there's a continuing consolidation up to the point where the Communist Party can run the country effectively as a one-party state, despite being formally backed by the National Front, which would also even be fine if it were also committed to those factory committees actually running. Like, I, I, I think it's been well established at this point that we've put aside this kind of childish understanding of revolution as being whenever... Uh, only the masses enter the stage of history and it all goes really well and everybody like sits down and agrees by consensus over a cup of coffee to you know r- manage the affairs of the society in the objective interests of all with no one's toes getting stepped on ever right like that that ultra that, that painful ultra left infantile communism we've put away forever when we talk about revolution i think this is what we're really talking about and in an ideal situation this is what we're talking about. Um, that further complicates things. Uh, just, just to sort of underscore the popularity of the National Front government, the first elections that were held in 1948 after the establishment of the National Front government had 89% people come out and vote for the, of the voting age population come out to vote for the National Front government. Now, true, there could have been vote manipulation, but the communist party didn't have a tight enough grip on all the institutions of the government yet to manipulate it that much so it really is like an example of how much optimism there was for this project and that that eventually turned sour for a lot of people um because you know dissidents started showing up in uh you know gulags the little little check gulags um, 
one of which was a uranium mine that a lot of people died from radioact uh, from radiation poisoning mining in. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't up, up, and away from there. Like like the legacy of actually existing socialism in the 20th century. There was a balance of soaring heights and plunging yeah. depths. And one of those plunging depths was the Stalinist period that a few years into the uh, establishment of the Czechoslovak Socialist Republic was fully underway. And then some of the, the bright spots would be like the revolution and then the peaks again in the 1960s after the death of Stalin. But yeah. Well, I think the, yeah, I think you're right that the like, basically the 68 Prague Spring movement doesn't make sense. This is kind of what I was starting with, right? In, in 1968, the slogan socialism with a human face can either be understood to be a cynical ploy uh, by anti-communist liberal middle class people to uh, softly weaken communist rule until they can get eventual uh, economic liberalization, which is the way that we're taught if we're taught that at all. Actually, we're generally taught that it was just an anti-communist revolt. Uh, the fact that it very clearly wasn't and that it understood itself in socialist terms complicates that a lot for people. And I've heard it explained a way as being like, well, you know, they had to do that. Otherwise, you know, th that way they th have a better chance of success. I think it makes a lot more sense to consider that 20 years prior, the Czech people had overwhelmingly come out in favor of establishing socialism. And then, you know, they gave it 20 years before they turned back out to say this isn't quite what I, what I meant. It takes another t full 20 years for them to give up on the project altogether. And I think it's interesting when you see the, you know, when you think about these basically in waves, you have in 1918, the, Czech the Czechoslovak Republic is founded. The next generation makes a revolution to make that republic socialist. The next generation makes a revolution to make that republic socialist for real. Come on, guys. And it's not until the next generation that people say, fine, we'll just give up on the whole socialism project altogether. It just makes so much more sense to think about it in this sequence of generational events. Uh, whereas if you if you remove the legitimacy of 1948, this supposedly beleaguered people that's incapable of sticking up for itself, even though it has a rising every generation uh, for a hundred years, almost. Which I was just trying to I was just trying to get to the point of saying that the impulse for 1968 was the same as the impulse for 1948. And then if we don't understand those two things as being uh, the same project, then we really can't understand either of them. And this history um, appears before us impenetrable and obfuscated in a way that like it makes it impossible to understand, which I think is the reason why it's taught the way that it's taught by Cold War liberalism. Um, what's infuriating is that that lesson is also you know, parroted and uh, taken up and parroted by uh, Western socialists to really, to no theoretical clarity whatsoever. It just seems like it's a much more comfortable narrative to say, oh, the reason why it didn't work out is because we just haven't had a chance yet, rather than saying, the reason why it didn't work out is because we fucked it up. Check us, the Czech Republic and Slovakia now look a whole hell of a lot closer to like Nordic welfare states than they do the United States. And I think that has everything to do with the legacy of Czech Absolutely. socialism. It's 
it's a uh, it's a it's like Czech socialism that was dreamed of by you know the the people who made the republic and who made the 1948 revolution through a mirror darkly right it's it's all that's left it's the vestiges of it and uh i don't know it's it's been 30 years since the collapse of the Czechoslovak socialist state and things are looking worse than ever for the world as a whole and uh Czech the Czech Republic and Slovakia have split apart uh, and the the idea of this like pan-slavic unity of of people who were only separate peoples because half of their country was taken by the the hung was was placed under Hungarian rule and the other half was was placed under Austrian rule those divisions were officially recognized in the eyes of the Czechoslovak people with the triumph of capitalism and are forever cemented at this point what looks to be forever cemented so it really is like a tragedy of like you know the velvet divorce is what they call it of two people deciding never mind we can't we can no longer be in a country together the the bonds that they tried to heal that they tried to heal during socialism are fully just cut apart and cauterized now sort of like yugoslavia but much less bloody it's a, it's a it's a tragedy I, I think the fall of the czechoslovak socialist republic was a tragedy it, it's it's establishment the process of czechoslovak socialism was married triumph and tragedy yeah in cycles all throughout its history and it finally ended in a tragedy the artificial separation of of a a group of people who were essentially the same people but for the effect, the the lingering effects of imperialism and now they're both part of nato reunited but it feels no good Oh, oh, oh.